0: Hello Village, you're listening to Heal Grow Thrive, the podcast hosted by Forward Promise. If you don't know us, we're social change advocates focused on reclaiming the humanity of boys and young men of color and supporting the villages that nurture them. In our podcast, we'll talk with direct service practitioners, young people, researchers and leaders in philanthropy, offering a deeper understanding of both the issues facing boys and young men of color. And quality solutions for their healing, growing, and thriving. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to an important episode in our series, highlighting the voices of our grantees, fellows, and other stakeholders, and how they are pivoting their work in the face of this COVID 19 outbreak. We work with some phenomenal people who are fully committed to ensuring that boys and young men of color and their villages successfully emerge on the other side of this. This pandemic is exposing the disproportionate struggle faced by communities of color that is and always has been rooted in a history of dehumanization, racism, and colonization. These factors make boys and young men of color and their villages more vulnerable to illness, violence, and financial ruin. So we're dedicating these first episodes to sharing the issues and the solutions they've developed. We invite you to be thinking about sharing and doing what you can to ensure that boys and young men of color heal, grow and thrive both during this crisis and beyond. Hi everyone. My name is Dr. Rhonda Bryant. I am the co-director of Forward Promise. We are a national program of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and Joining me today is Keisha Byrd, Director of Youth Policy from CLASP, a national nonprofit organization focused on advancing policy solutions for low-income people. Keisha is also a member of the National Advisory Committee for Forward Promise, and so I'm really happy that we're able to spend some time today talking with you, Keisha, about COVID-19 response and the impacts on low-income people. So as everyone knows, you know, we have shifted our focus across the nation to think about COVID-19, how it's impacting everyone, and in particular, how it's impacting marginalized communities, and what are the solutions that really need to be advanced so that we are all healthy and safe, and so that we can bring our nation back to um, a place of wholeness. So today I'm going to spend some time talking with Keisha just about what you all are seeing and experiencing uh, as you're doing your policy work. What are your partners on the ground talking about? Um, So just glad to have you on with us today and to be able to share this information with the public.
1: Yeah, thanks. Thanks, um, Rhonda and the Forward Promise team for, um, you know, inviting me to talk a little bit about what we're seeing, what we're personally doing um, at class I'm, I'm going to talk specifically about the work of the youth team um, and what we're hearing from um, young people themselves who have been reaching out to our partners. So for the past month, and some of my colleagues, this has been going on for six to eight weeks, um, who really have been working on paid family um, medical leave. But for the past month, in the youth policy field, we've been particularly concerned, not just about the public safety and the public health that L, the whole country is concerned about, but the kind of economic fallout that we know young people Mm -hmm. are experiencing. Mm -hmm. They are, quarter of all workers in low-wage jobs, 38% of youth and young adults and Gen Zers, Millennials, are also gig workers. And so the narrative is that, you know, they were in spring break, that they aren't taking this seriously. And we know that's not the case for the young people that we know in our communities they are taking this very seriously they're in communities with their families and they're also part of our workforce who's being impacted would-be workers they were in programs getting training they were in programs getting you know positive youth development and a lifeline for their health and for their mental health and their safety those programs are shut down so we're concerned about those youth serving organizations who were a lifeline for young people in their communities as well as the economic like, fragility of those young adults to take care of themselves and their family.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's what we're hearing from some of the Ford Promise grantees as well. They are the ones working on the front lines with youth, and they're struggling to keep up with what the varied needs are. So the youth team focuses a lot on the issue of workforce in particular. So are there any particular policies that you all are trying to advance during this time to help young people um, as they're navigating, trying to stay in the workforce and stay healthy?
1: Yeah, a couple of things that um, we're doing and and in partnership talking to many young adults who were gig workers, you know, in the last CARES Act, there was a big stimulus, $2 trillion, right? one can young people get the the 1200 um stimulus check are they eligible if they're non filers are you eligible if someone already claims you we already know that it's a loophole for students who are young adults who someone else is claiming them there's a loophole for those who are experiencing homelessness so we're working on who's left out and also trying to get the word out about how you do the um filing to, to get your stimulus um, but concerned about the unbanked, you know, you don't have a bank, there's no direct way to get, you know, to get the stimulus. And then also for the unemployment insurance, it was written as a, as a broad way so that if you are a gig worker or you had an offer letter, you could potentially um, qualify for the unemployment insurance and the bonus as a result of the um, pandemic. But we're not sure, um, really reading through those guidance, how can we get the information out there and how can we better understand who's left out? So those are young people who are already in the workforce and also everyone getting the stimulus checks. But what we're hearing from um, some of our youth-led partners is, well, what is unemployment insurance first? You know, we're dealing with these vehicles and these systems. And assuming people already know what they are and, and what they do and how to access them mm-hmm. so it's a lot of information that needs to get out And so we're trying to get out accurate and timely information the other piece we're really concerned about and I know that's with the four promise grantees are the youth serving organizations who were serving thousands of young people providing subsidized wages mm-hmm. um, you know incentives all of those things a month ago in some places two months ago depending on when the stay-at-home order starts and they're not to close down so we're looking for creative solutions on how do we continue to get um financial resources into the hands of those young people and into for the use of organizations but also it's not as it's, you know easier said than done to say well then switch and do your training online you know we know school districts are having trouble with that so, how do we expect community based organizations to do that? So, uh, we have a number of resources on class. We just sent a letter to the Department of Labor. We have recommendations to um, our policymakers in, in Congress and are really working on strengthening expanding resources for existing program, programs. But also, we need to really think about not just immediate, but the long term. Because this population didn't recover from the last recession. And particularly when we talk about white men of color, right? Young black men, the economy was booming, but not for them. But what is this going to do for them having two, you know, once in a generation events in your lifetime? What does that do to set you back? We not only think about, you know, economics and social and economic status, but also race and gender. And so we're more than concerned, um, but we don't think that our policymakers understand the sense of urgency um, that's happening for our young people and in their communities. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that really um, highlights as well, the history of structural and systemic racism that we have had in this country for so long, because many of the issues that we're grappling with now are things that had we come up with positive policy and practice solutions in the past, the pandemic would not have hit our communities so horribly. So can you talk a little bit about what some of those systemic and structural issues have been? And what do you see as the solutions we could put forward now?
1: Yeah, well, now the whole country is seeing who is in low wage jobs, who's working in low wage jobs, right? Who is considered essential? And we've seen all the news reports over the last week about in particular about the African-American community and Some folks doing the blame game but we know in the structural issues that we're facing in terms of systemic racism and economic racism and violence is about the lockout of whole groups of people and then young people in particular you know putting pathways to them into these low-wage jobs and these low-wage jobs they have no advancement and so you're considered essential but you also aren't earning enough money to have the privilege like you and i to work from home to have the privilege to have enough savings you're not getting laid off so you can apply for unemployment insurance. so it's so what is happening is really surfacing for the whole country to see these cracks in our system. Mm-hmm. The other thing that we're we're really um, seeing as well and I think some of our policymakers are noticing that is that when we do have programs in place, they are there are not enough investments at, at scale to meet the needs. Um, to serve all of the young people who could be served, who want to be served. And so now when they're not being served, we're seeing that the, the system doesn't have, the, the public systems don't have the capacity to meet the demands and needs. Um, and you can just take the unemployment insurance program that people are you know on hold for eight hours, reapplying and all of that. We, we don't have the capacity to, to meet the, the current needs think one other thing that we really need to think about totally and I know this is something that uh, Four promises focuses on but the well-being the trauma and the mental health of our communities and communities of color has always been but I don't want to say at risk but has always not been stable given our place um, in this country and our history in this country and so you take a global event a pandemic like this where you are locked out of a lot of resources already and then you take again the impacts that the public health crisis is having on your family given the underlying health conditions and so forth and so when we think about young people who are coming of age and then those who are in young adulthood we have to also think about what this is doing to them personally um, as everything else is swirling around them And so how do we make sure that our community-based organizations have the resources they need, not just now, but in the future, to deal with the aftermath of this crisis? And then if they need resources, then that means policies need to be in place. So telehealth, the SAMHSA have the, you know, there was a tiny bit of money in the CARES Act from our perspective, and that's not enough. How do we advance, you know, Medicaid, um, an expansion to more better support um, young adults and have culturally relevant and responsive practices that we know work for our communities. So it's a now response and an ongoing response because we can't go to business as usual
0: after this crisis. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, one of the questions I had is, as we look at these opportunities to put new policies and practices in place to benefit our communities. I think a lot of people believe that that's all the federal government's job, but can you talk a little bit about how the states can really have a role in fixing this now?
1: The states have a huge role. You know, there's a role for federal government, there's a role for state and local government, and there's a role for, you know, the private, private sector. So for states, there's lots of choices that they can make. And I'll just take this, uh, two choices um, that I think we want to highlight. When we think about our um, SNAP uh, benefits programs as our, you know, food and nutrition programs, you know, there were some workup requirements attached to those programs. And that impacts a lot of uh, people, um, in particular, single adults. We know many of our, um, or non-custodial adults, and we know many of our young people, and in, in particular, also boys and men of color may fall in that category if they're needing food and nutrition assistance, have work requirements. So those has been suspended, you know, federally, but states still have to make policy choices to make sure that if young people need food, uh, nutrition assistance, that they get that because you know the you know businesses are closed they their their work sites are closed so that's a that's a state policy choice that is that is an easy lift the other state policy choices that you want to call out attention to and we've been doing some work with partners around we're seeing the criminalization and decriminalization of 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 folk in this in this space and so states have enormous capacity and local government to work on public safety of those who are incarcerated, as well as the decriminalization and sending folks home. But when folks come home, they need resources and supports um, in their own communities. And, and, and so um, states and local communities have a great role to play in that, as well as thinking about parole and probation violations, those technical violations, which we know is a cyclical fact um, mm-hmm. that we need to be away that send too many people and youth and young people back into incarceration. So really taking a look at reforming what that looks like and what is the intersection of work, education with those particular technical violations that happen, that send folks back into incarceration or detention, but that now there's no work or education for them to go to. So it's uncovering a state choice that they can make to do the right thing. decarcerate young people. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And states oftentimes rely on those youth development organizations to provide those services for them. So what do you think those organizations need most right now in order to be able to meet that need?
1: So what we're hearing, and we've um, done tons of interviews, have a survey out and all that, and what we're hearing from um, programs or a couple of different things that they need when they need emergency assistance we you know the last um, uh, package had you know uh, assistance for small business uh, small businesses and some nonprofits can um, access that and that's loans right but they need emergency assistance so that they can figure out creative ways to stay in touch with young people provide services remotely if possible there's a big digital divide so we've heard a lot about being able to provide cell phones, hotspots, tablets, and those kinds of things. Who for young people who are outside of the education space that they also needed in their um, in this kind of youth-serving workforce nonprofit space. And then also ability to provide financial assistance directly to young people um, for any number of things that they may need to support themselves and their families. So we're hearing from. those organizations of a few of those uh, kinds of things that they need so that they can have the doors open
0: when this is you know all over with yeah So finally Keisha what words of wisdom or advice would you share with other organizations like yours that are trying to really put out strong advisement around dealing with the COVID-19 crisis
1: So a couple of things, and we've been sharing this with our partners as well, is that we have to be able to be a a megaphone and a microphone for what's happening um, in communities. And so to the extent possible, we need more stories directly from youth and young adults themselves. and, And in particular, thinking about the communities that are most impacted, so young Black men, young um aapi men young latino men we need their voices and their experiences to guide you know our recommendations and our policy work because that's a part of the narrative shift that needs to happen Mm -hmm. about who these young people are and um what their needs are the other advice i would have for other kind of advocacy and policy organizations is to not just think about the immediate but the long-term needs that we've all been advocating for 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 decades. And now we're seeing it, you know, truly exposed. But what do we need to put in place now as people are paying attention, policymakers in the the world is falling apart? And what is needed in the long-term so that we can have more stability in economic ways, more mental health and, and emotional stability as well as more wholeness for our young people in our communities so i would say those are the two things we've been kind of sharing with our partners and what we're kind of walking the walk ourselves
0: thank you so much that's definitely definitely needed i want to thank you keisha just for joining us today to talk about what you're working on at Class, what you're hearing from your partner organizations on the ground and just thank you for your diligent work over decades now to impact communities of color. And you know, as we make it through this crisis together, it's gonna to take all of us in our different sectors doing this work. And so I'm always grateful to know that we have a voice that is powerful and advocating for our young people in your sector while we're working on the ground with communities. So thank you.
1: Thank you for having me. Everybody be safe, be well, take care of yourselves.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Heal, Grow, Thrive, the podcast. We hope these conversations prompt a deeper commitment to action in the field and in philanthropy to create a society that is fair and equitable for all. For more information about Forward Promise, visit forwardpromise.org or follow us on social media. We're simply Forward Promise on Facebook and at forward underscore promise on Twitter and Instagram.